Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. But uh, Galatians chapter 3 begins a different section of Galatians. Basically, if you want to get a bird's-eye view of an overview of Galatians, chapters 1 and 2 is apostolic credentials. What Paul is trying to do is to lay down the fact that he has the right to say what he's saying because his apostleship was on the line. Um, Evidently, these Judaizers come in and said, well, you know, Paul's not one of the big boys down in Jerusalem. He's just this young upstart. And uh, really, when you go to Jerusalem, you find out that he's not really teaching you the truth. And so that's where all the Judaistic ideas came in, the the requirement for... um, circumcision and keeping the law and all that other stuff. So Paul has to deal with that. And then Galatians chapter 3 and 4, we have a theological section. And this theological section deals with a very important concept, and that is justification by faith alone. It's a very important concept. In fact, it's the concept that is underlying many of the divisions of denominations today. How is it that a person is declared righteous before God? And then in Galatians 5 and 6, we have a very practical section of, okay, so what? Um, Here's the theology. Here's what the basis for our lives are. It's the basis for things. Now, in light of that, how should we then act, live? How should we believe? What should we do? And so you have a practical section. You find that, by the way, in a lot of Paul's books. In Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, you have theology. In Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, you have application. Um, In Thessalonians, you see that. In Romans, Romans 1 through 8, theology. Or actually, 1 through 11 is is, um, theology. And then 12 through 16 is application. And to be quite honest, um, just as a short aside, I think that's the way it ought to work. I think uh, the the way we live should depend on our theology. And if you've got a bad theology, you're going to have a bad life. Um, you need to get your theology straight. And people say, ah, oh, you know, that theology, that's boring. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Well, the way you know what you're supposed to do is the theology that you have. So it's important to know that. Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you crucified? O foolish Galatians. Um... That's not a very user-friendly way to talk to these people, is it? So like Paul saying up says, you nitwits. That's basically what it is. Um, the word used there um, is a word that doesn't mean somebody who is foolish because they don't have the ability to be wise. It's someone who can be wise. They just don't want to think. They just shut their brain off. They don't consider And Paul is saying you need to consider some things. You need to think. And he says uh, what happened is that they've bewitched you. They've they've been able to do some sleight of hand. They've faked you out. They've been able to pull some wool over your eyes because you've not thought. This, This is someone who is duped because they don't think. Now, we don't have that problem today, do we? How many Christians do you meet that actually think? Yeah, there's not many, right? Most of them emote, don't they? They they just have feelings. Oh, you know, that guy on TV, he's so nice. 
you know, picking on Bob Shuler. You know, isn't he such a nice guy? Isn't he so nice? The fact that he doesn't preach the gospel is irrelevant. He's a nice guy. And um, we had that problem in our church. I don't know about your church. Um, Paul says you need to think. And, and he wants them to go back and, and this whole notion of justification because here's the question he, he's dealing with. How is it that you are justified? Now the Bible says very clearly, I think, it, that we're justified by faith, right? And that's, how every, that's, that's Romans, that's all of that. So the Bible says we're justified by faith. We believe, okay? Now that faith is founded in the grace of God, right? Because it's by grace we're saved through faith. So all salvation is based, has its ultimate basis in the grace of God. And uh, the way that grace is appropriated and activated is through our faith. And later on we're going to find out in Ephesians that even that faith is a gift of God. That's not your faith, that's God's faith that he gives you. But the Bible says, I am justified by faith. The Judaizers say, here's what the Judaizers say. They say, no, you're justified by an element of faith, but you're also justified by your works. I remember when I was doing some channel surfing the other night. I love those clickers. I don't know what I, I already did it, you know. You had to actually get up and turn the channel, you know. You just flip that little doodad now. And uh, I was skating by the, uh, what, EWTN channel? And I remember seeing a big board banner on there, justification is not by faith alone. I mean, that's, that was the banner, you know, and I, I slid by it. I didn't stop and see what it said. But see, Catholicism says you're not saved by faith alone. They say that, it says, in fact, they pronounce a damnation and a curse on anybody who believes that. They say you're justified by faith and works. The Judaizer says you're justified by faith and works. And in fact, if you look at just about every religion today, cults otherwise, almost every one of them says you're justified by some effort of your own. Now, why do you think that's true? Why, why, or why do, why do you think they teach that? Why is that so popular? Why do you think every religion in the world almost wants to say you're justified by some effort of you, that you do? Go for it. Speak up. Lower the bar, make it something that I can I can attain. What else does it do? Yeah. I like this lady. She's got all the right answers. I <laughs> she's giving me this weird look. No, it's I think I think that is the major reason that you hit on right there. It's rooted in pride. We want to think somehow, admit it, you want to think that there was something in you that made God love you, don't you? I do. Man, you know, there's that part of me that says, well, God loved me because I'm a real nice guy. Or God loved me because of something I did. And, and, and I think within every religion of the world, there's a deep-seated need in that religion for self-glorification. What... After all, what is the root of all sin but pride? And there's a piece of us, piece of humanity, that wants to think that somehow we don't need an external agency for salvation. We can do it. 
And so whatever religion you see, there's always that element of self-effort. I do something. And even in churches today, there's a, a real strong tendency towards that. I do something. Except today what it is is, well, you know, I believed. Look what I did. I believed. And we're going to talk about this whole thing in Ephesians where if you really understand what the Bible says, there is only one reason you believed, and that is God granted you repentance. That is why you believed in the first place. Um, but when we look at this, what Paul's trying to get these people to do, going back to the text, he's trying to get them to remember, now when I came into town, how were you justified? By the way, just, just before we go on, justification, is it, a, is it an act or an event? A process, I mean. It's an event. Sanctification is a process. All right. Justification is an event in time. I was I was justified after all what it is to be declared righteous. Now here, here's one of the major. Just so you understand, when the Catholicism says I'm justified, to them it is a process. It is not an event. It's something that happens over a period of time. And you cannot ever all of me know if you're justified. You know, you sort of die and go to purgatory and you work off all your sins for a few million years and finally you do get into heaven. But to them it is a process. The Bible says it is an event. Every time the word justified is used, it's used in a tense, a verb tense, that points to a, a, a what's called punctiliar action, something that happened in an instant in time. It's not some process over a period of time. And it says here, I want to learn from you, did you receive, verse 2, the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? When they were justified, he, re he says, remember back to the time that I came to your town and I preached the gospel, you, you were saved, you were redeemed. How did that happen? Did that happen by your works? Or did it happen by the hearing of faith? What was it? Now, what's the answer to that? By faith. It wasn't. He's trying to point them back. And, and I want you all to think back to the time that you were justified. Did you earn it? Did you work for it? Or did you just believe? Um, and he's saying you, you started out... Just think about this. When, when these guys come in and say, well, you're saved by law and grace, by works and faith. Think about that. When you were initially justified, how was it? Was it by both of those or by just one of those? And he says, no, it was by one. It was by faith. Remember, your own experience. It was You were justified by faith alone. And then he says, um, are you so foolish, verse 3, Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Okay? Here's the thing to understand. In our own, in ourselves, what is the origin of our faith? What's the origin? Where does that come from? And in this case, verse 3, what does it say? Spirit. spirit. So God, Holy Spirit. I'm going to put down Holy Spirit. Where, where does this works come from? Faith. 
flesh. Okay? And what he's trying to say is, okay, you're justified by faith. Now are you so stupid to think, having begun in the Spirit, you're now made perfect by your flesh? So he's referring to sanctification. You're saved by you say, well, I think I think there's an element of that, but I also think what he's talking about here is the keeping of that salvation. See, what the Judaizers said is, yeah, you're saved by faith, but then you've got to keep the law. So what have they just done? They've added additional requirements onto that initial faith. Now, there's a lot of ways you can couch that. You could say, well, that's to keep yourself saved. You've got to do this in order to maintain your salvation, or you've got to do it to prove yourself, or whatever. But what they've done is they've added something onto your faith. That's your works. And I say it's a combination of both of those that saves you. And he's saying, isn't it foolish, having begun in the Spirit, having begun by faith, do you think now you're made perfect by what you do? And the answer, of course, is no. Boy, that's a good question. Boy, that's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. That's a good question, and that's a good point. In fact, that's a very important point to make. If you are truly born again, and then you get fouled up thinking that somehow you've got to work to keep it, do you lose your salvation? No, you're miserable, right? But you don't lose it. You can't lose it. You can get mixed up. What if you come to Christ thinking that you have to work to keep it? Can you be truly saved? That's really where I would probably land. That's a tough question. That's not an easy question when you think through it. Can I, I mean, the question, you know, the thing is, do you know theologically everything you need to know? Let's see, how theologically astute are you at the moment of your salvation? Not much, right? I mean, basically all you know is that I need to believe and God does this work in your heart. But, um, you know, I, I go back to what, what uh, Josh said. If you come to Christ upfront thinking, that's me and the Holy Spirit, or it's me and God, I have a difficult time seeing that as true saving faith. That's a tough question to think through. I agree with you, but at the same time, I have to think this is man trying to put an answer to everything. Yeah. Yeah. I 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and see that that that's where that that tension comes. You don't you don't have all the answers at the point of salvation. You know, you don't have a lot. In fact, you don't have a lot of answers. And if you feel like me, the more I study, the more questions I've got. You know, I feel like I you sort of digress in your knowledge or your ability to to know spiritual truth because there's just so much more that you feel like you should know that you don't. So you don't have all of that theology up front. It's just, I think there's a danger when, from the start, you think it's me and Christ. you got to go back. If somebody does it, you got to go back and clarify what is the gospel. It's Christ alone. It's not Christ to and, it's Christ. And when you start throwing that and in, you've got problems. Yeah. Right. So it, it robs your joy because you have the joy because your your joy is taken away by the fact that you need to do this and you need to do that and, and you try to work on your salvation. See, I think you can come to Christ just like you said there. I think you can truly be born again and get with a group and get fouled up thinking that somehow you've got to keep it, in which case now you're miserable. You know, you're back under that bondage. You know, who needs that? Um and, and I think you're right. I, I know a lot of people are just miserable thinking, you know, if I don't do this, you know, if I miss church this Sunday, God's going to not like me, and that might put my salvation in question kind of stuff. You know, good night. Who wants to live like that? You know, I mean, that that's bondage, you know. What about the role of repentance? Though? Well, repentance... You need to, you know, carry from you know, your, your past lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Well... That's a good question. You want a good reformed answer? Um, I sort of see one of the problems we have when we look at this whole idea of salvation is that there's a lot of pieces of it that are mis a mystery to us. I mean, we really, we really can't sort it out. And we, we can debate and kick it back and forth and all of that stuff. All I know is that is there's, there's this black box here and uh, what you got is you got some sinner coming in the front, you know, I want to give him a tail, right? And you got a redeemed person going out the back. And what happens in the middle is hard to sort out. But what we do know, that's a little halo in case you can, well, halo. Um, but what you do know is there are some things that happen in that salvation process. What, what are some of those things that are true of this salvation experience? What do you do? Okay. I think there's, there, there's belief, right? I have to believe. Um, I have to repent. Okay. And something happens where I'm changed. Okay. Now what comes first? We can, we can debate that. You know, you get five theologians in here, you get 20 answers. All right? Because it's tough. But I think what you do see is in that salvation, 
you know, that salvation event in your life, all right, whatever, whenever that occurred, you have elements of all of this. As a result of it, you see that. Yeah. And the question is, well, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, now, if you want my opinion, my, un my understanding, and, you know, I, I get, I'm allowed to teach that because, see, I'm the teacher, I can tell you what I think, you know, um, is that what, what, what God does is at the moment of salvation, God regenerates the person. You have a, a person who is dead in trespasses and sin. I mean, they are blind to spiritual truth. They, they can't understand it. What God does is God regenerates that person, and it is at that point in time that that person is redeemed. They are redeemed at the moment of regeneration. All right? And that's initiated by God. Immediately upon regeneration, what, does, what happens to that person? Well, for the first time in their life, the light goes on. They understand the gospel. The second thing that happens is that they believe the gospel and they repent of their sins. Okay? And it's a package deal. God doesn't regenerate you and then you don't repent. God doesn't regenerate you and you decide not to believe. It, it all goes together. You can't split one apart and take this piece and leave that piece off. You can't do that. It's all, it's all wrapped up together. But my understanding is you are regenerated, and then as a result of that regeneration, you are now able to understand spiritual truth. You believe, you repent, you confess your sins, you come to Christ. Others would say, no, what happens is you believe, and then God regenerates you. All right? And we can discuss the different nuances of that. We'll do that in Ephesians. But um, I, I think the important thing to understand at this point is what you have is you have somebody going into this black box, it's a sinner, they come out a believer, and in the process you see belief and repentance, you see a change in their life. All of those things are part of that process. I don't want to get too confusing. You were going to say something, Barb? He saves you. There may be an element in which case they are, in a sense that they are um, convicted of their sin. Um, I mean, you see that for Christ. You know, when he was on the earth, there was a lot of people that felt bad about their sin and things like that. But when it comes to salvation, there's a difference between feeling bad about your sin and true repentance. There, there's, there's a real difference. Judas felt bad and went out and hanged himself. Peter felt bad and repented. All right, what was the difference? One of them was lost, one was saved. All right, and all I'm saying is it's, this is a tough question. And don't take my word for it. Don't walk out of here and just believe what I believe because... You don't, you know, you think for yourself, right? I mean, that's, you don't want to be foolish. Like the Galatians, you got to think this thing out and sort this thing out and work it out in your own mind. I, I understand that this person is dead in sin. There's no way they can understand spiritual truth unless God does a work in their heart to make them able to understand. 
And I, take, I, I understand that work as being regeneration, where they truly understand. And immediately upon regeneration, that person believes in Jesus Christ, repents of their sins, all right? And that's the part that we see. That's that visible part. That's my understanding. Because if you don't have that, you've got to come back to this whole, you get stuck in another problem, and that is, um, well, if, if that's true, Al, then, then it is possible for someone to believe apart from the Holy Spirit. If God doesn't have to regenerate, then, you know, if you do a good definite or a good presentation of the gospel, they should be able to believe. And that, by the way, is underneath a lot of your modern evangelistic methodologies starting with Charles Finney, who was a lawyer and thought that if he just gave somebody a sufficiently convincing argument for salvation, they'd believe. He didn't need the Holy Spirit. But I understand man as being dead in sin. Unless God opens your eyes, you're not going to believe anything. And it goes back to this whole notion here. Now, see, where we understand works coming in is a post-salvation thing. And it's really interesting because I was talking to my Mormon neighbor last night and she could not, she didn't understand the difference. And if you talk to your Catholic friends who are really into Catholicism, they don't understand the difference. I don't know if you've ever had Catholics that you've tried to witness to and, and talk about faith and works and things like that. They don't understand that, that works as a post-salvation experience. They mix it in with the salvation process. Because, and I think it goes back to this whole notion, there's a piece of us that wants to think that God owes us something, that we can do something ourselves, that, that we contribute to our ultimate salvation. And I like the way Charles Spurgeon said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is your sin problem. That's your contribution that God's got to clean up. Now these are these are this is deep theology kind of stuff here, but you need to think think through it a little bit. See. Comments or questions? It's your class, Don. Okay. Right. See, one of the major arguments that Catholicism has, and you might even read this if you go back and look at some of the historical writings in, in that, is they say, so you're telling me a person can have faith, believe in Jesus Christ, and go live like the devil and go to heaven. That's one of their major arguments. Now the answer to that is yo. That's a new word. Yeah. You gotta say yo. Okay? It's a combination of yes plus no. Okay? The answer to tell them is yo. 
Yes, in the sense that once I am saved, I am always saved. But no, in the sense that now I, that I am regenerated, I'm not going to want to do those things. See? And that, that's, that's where the, the rub comes in, because they want to make it this thing saying, well, you're telling me, you know, you just go believe Christ, go out and kill anybody you want, live any way you want, you're going to heaven. It doesn't matter. Well, in a sense, if you are truly redeemed, it won't matter, right? If I'm truly redeemed and I turn into a serial killer, I still go to heaven. Right? Because I'm not saved by what I do. I'm not lost by what I don't do. However, what does God do to the redeemed person? He changes them. See? And it's an internal thing that works its way out. So that, I, you know, the question is, do you sin all you want? Well, yeah, but I don't want to sin. I don't want to do those things to displease God. I don't want to. I just don't want to do those things anymore. And so it's a result, not a cause. But that, that's the thing that, that, that the Galatians were fouled up on. He's, saying, and he's making this argument. Number one, remember when you were born again, it was by faith alone. Two, do you think now that it, having begun in the, in the Spirit, do you now take your flesh and contribute to your ultimate salvation? It's, are you foolish enough to believe that's true? So in, in essence, there, there's two groups of people. One, there's a group that says, I have to be saved by my faith and works. There's another group that says, well, I'm saved by faith, but then I've got to keep it by works. And that's mainly who Paul is talking to here, which can be a miserable group because no matter how, if you think you're saved by your faith and works, how do you know you've done enough works? Do you ever know that? No. You never know. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He goes back and says, think of all the stuff you suffered because of your belief. Is it in vain? Because if you believe you're saved by works, it was in vain. Your suffering was in vain. It meant nothing. Therefore, he supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you. Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Who supplies the Spirit? Who supplies the Spirit? God. Now, does he do that by faith or by works? Yeah, he's saying, how did the Holy Spirit come to you in the first place? Was it because you went out and did a whole bunch of works and it came? No, it's by faith. It's all by faith. Just as Abraham believed God and was counted him for righteous, now nah, he pulls in the big man. Abraham. You go back and you talk to any Jew in that day, and the, the, who, 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 the, who are the top two men that they revered among all others? Abraham and Moses. Those are the top two. And it's interesting because I, I have in the notes there some rabbinical quotes. But if you go back and look at the rabbinical writings, the Jews had this notion that Abraham was not justified by faith. Rather, he was justified by works. In other words, what they say, here's, here's the thing. They say, Abraham was so righteous that God looked down and saw this righteous man, and because of his righteousness, God chose him to be the father of the Jews. Now, how egotistical is that? Can I, can I be true that there are some of us today that when it comes to this predestination election, I run into people who say, well, you know, God looked down the course of time and saw that I was a real good person. Because of that, he chose me. It's the same thing. 
All right, you just changed the names, but the idea is the same. Why did God choose Abraham? Because he wanted to. That's the only, I love that. That's the only answer. I got to train you. You know, when you're done with this class, you just say, because he wanted to, all right? But uh, he wanted to. There's no, I don't know why God chose Abraham. He was a pagan. Guy worshipped the moon. Why did he choose? I don't know why, but he did. But it wasn't because Abraham was a great guy. And, it, you know, here, for example, uh, Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations. No one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High and was taken into covenant with him. He established the covenant in his flesh, and he was tested, he was found faithful. Therefore the Lord assured him by an oath that the nations would be blessed through his posterity, that he would multiply him like the dust of the earth and exalt his posterity like the stars and cause them to inherit from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth, Ecclesiasticus 44, 19 through 21. That's an apocryphal book. But what it's saying is God took Abraham in a covenant with him because of what? Abraham kept the law. Now, what's the problem with that whole notion of Abraham keeping the law? Yeah, it was 430 years later. So how can you keep something you didn't know about? Well, they say Abraham just knew it, and because of that, he kept it. You know, I mean, you can always come up with something. Prayer of Manasseh, Therefore thou, O Lord God of righteousness, not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who did not sin against thee. Well, gee, where did he come from? Did Abraham sin? Yeah, well, I don't know what I don't know what he was smoking. This is a prayer of Manasseh. This is an apocryphal prayer. Supposedly, the Manasseh, the evil king, prayed when he repented. But thou hast appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob weren't sinners, but I am. They didn't need to repent. I do. Hello. I mean, look at Genesis. Look at Jacob. That guy was a that guy's bad news. He had all kinds of problems. So I don't know where he got this, but that was the mentality that they didn't need to repent. Book of Jubilees. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and was well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. What book of Genesis did he read? All right. Yeah, there's reasons for that. There's reasons the Apocrypha is not in the Word of God, folks, and this is some of them right here. Um, you know, their idea was, well, Abraham was this righteous guy, and God looked down and said, ooh, there's a righteous guy. I think I'll choose him to be the founder of the Jews and all of that. And Paul says, listen, what's it say? Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, where does that come from? Genesis 15, 6, one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. It says, Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. And the idea of accounted there is to impute. What, what does impute mean? To put on an account, to pay an account. If I go down and pay $50 on my Sears bill and they say they credit that to my account, that's the whole idea there. They're imputing my money to that account. It's a payment on account. God credited Abraham with righteousness because Abraham believed. And what did Abraham believe? That God would make a great nation, bless him, and make his name great. And that's in Genesis 15, 6, by the way. And it says, because of that, Abraham believed God and was credited him for righteousness, not because of anything he did, but because of what he believed. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Ooh, ouch. 
See, the Jew thought that, well, you know, hey, Abraham's our father, we're in. Remember John 8? The argument with the Pharisees, and, you know, they say, well, we're of our father Abraham. We don't know what father your, your father is, but we're, we're of our father Abraham. And their whole notion in the Jewish, the Jewish notion was, if we are the seed of Abraham, we're in. We're in. What saved Job? He was a righteous man. Look at what he did. That's what they'd say. Look at what he did. See, what they had done is they had twisted all the scripture to support the notion that you're saved by what you do. And you're not saved by what you do. Now, your salvation is evidenced by what you do. But it's not a cause of that. Yeah, you're. Yeah, they say that, that all that's saying is that Abraham was credited for righteousness because he believed, but he was chosen by God initially because of all the works he did. Because they, like, mm -hmm. they went about, as, as Paul says in Romans, I think it's 10. They went about to establish their own righteousness. See? And that's why, you know, the first week we talked about all the lists and all that. We have the same problem today. You know, I'm righteous. Why, how do you know? Well, you know, I see, I don't go see movies. And I don't drink. I don't smoke. And I don't do this. And I don't do that. I don't. That doesn't make any, that doesn't mean anything at all. We do the same thing that the Jews did. But it says here that the people who are truly sons of Abraham are the people that believe. They're not the people that don't believe. They're the people that believe and do the works of Abraham. And what did Abraham do? He believed. So if you want to be a child of Abraham, how do you do that? Are you born a Jew? No, you believe. Abraham is the father of all who believe. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. So then those who are not of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, who are of faith, are blessed with believing Abraham. This is interesting. In you shall all nations be blessed. And sort of what you see here is a double meaning to that. Number one, there's almost a triple meaning to that in the Bible. Number one, Abraham is a blessing, A, because through him came the Messiah. All right? Abraham was also a blessing in the sense that he was the model of faith to all who would believe. And Abraham is a blessing to the nations in the fact that the nations who bless him bless, are blessed by God and the nations who curse him are cursed by God. But in this passage here, it's using Abraham as a model of faith. Not a model of works, a model of faith. And it's not what he did that justified him, it's what he believed that justified him. Because, and here's the other question, what was the great test for Abraham? What was his great test? Son, right? To offer Isaac his son on the altar. And uh, when did that happen? Before or after he was justified? 
Yeah, it's, in fact, I think it was like 25 years after, something like that. It's quite a ways after that event. I think it was, what, 75 when he left Har Haran. Um, and, it, and, he, and he was 99 when the angel visited and told him that he would bear a son. And Isaac was born when he was 100 years old. I think, I think that's the way it works, if I, my memory serves me right. But uh, he was justified long before Isaac showed up. So it wasn't his offering Isaac that justified him, it was his faith. But as far as you and I are concerned, how did we know Abraham was justified? How did I know he was justified? By what he, by what he did. And that's, the, that's James, that's James chapter 2 right there. You know, people say, well, James and Paul are preaching two different gospels, because in James it says Abraham was justified by works, and in Romans 4, it says he was justified by faith, so they're preaching a different... No, no, don't listen to that. Paul's emphasis is, that, is from the Godward side. From God's perspective, when was Abraham justified? When he believed. From the human perspective, when did I see that justification evident? When he offered his son. If you saw Abraham walk out on a starry night and look up at the stars, you didn't see a halo all of a sudden appear on his head or he start to glow or anything like that. From my perspective, I can't see the moment that he was justified, but I could see it when he did something. And that's the message of James chapter 2. So if you want to be blessed, you got to be blessed with believing Abraham. For as many, verse 10, as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. What he does now is he turns and he flips this whole notion around a little bit. He says, let's look at the curse of the law. And by the way, the law is a curse. And, and this is the thing that I, I don't think people understand. How many people take math in school? Anybody know math? Remember the old uh, little quadrant or whatever the thing is? You know, you got zero here. You got your, your y-axis and your x-axis or whatever. Well, let, let's, let's draw a little plot here, all right? And let's say, let's just say here that um, x is time. Time goes out this way. And uh, y is a measure of any sin that you do, all right? And negative, of course, is that you do an act of sin, all right? And positive is that you're righteous, okay? Now, if you do what God expects you to do, where do you land on that chart? If you do exactly what the law demands, where do you land? I'm right on the line, ain't I? That's what God expects. See, I don't get any brownie points for doing the right thing. That's what I expect you to do that. Now, when I sin, where does it go? Below the line. So what you do here, and this is the thing to understand, is that all of us live our lives down here. All of our life. And every once in a while we might spike up and do something right, but most of the time we're below the line. Now, in order for you to be Innocent, where do you got to be? On the line. And here's the point. Do you ever go above the line? So here's the problem. You can never erase this. You can never erase it. 
That's why this whole notion of, well, you know, if I do a bad thing and I do a good thing, it sort of negates, no, 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 no. The good thing is what you're supposed to do. You don't get any credit for that. That's what you're expected to do. But when you sin, you run a deficit. And the problem is there's no way in the law, in the Old Testament law, to ever get rid of the deficit. Can't get rid of it. Can't. Think of it as a business. If you have a business, and I come into your business, and I buy something, I pay you cash, does that let me come in some other time and get something for free? Well, no. I mean, I'm supposed to pay for what I get. I mean, that's expected. If I come in, I run up a bill and charge it, and then I come in, I pay cash. Do you give me a credit against my bill if I pay cash for the item I'm buying? Sears doesn't do that. You still owe the money. That's, that's the way it is with our sin. We run up a debt with God, but there's no way we can ever pay the debt. Because when we do do the right thing, that's just what's expected. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Yeah. That's that's a, that's an excellent illustration. I, I don't get a check at the end of the year saying, you know, we've noticed you you've not don't have any speeding tickets, you've not run any red lights, so you know, here's a hundred dollar check for being a good citizen. I'll tell you what, you run a red light and get caught. It's not the way it works, is it? See the law. And that's the thing to understand about the law. The law says this is the standard. This is what you're supposed to be doing. And, there's, and by definition, the law does not give you a way to erase the sin. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.